1: Terms and conditions apply.
0: So our story actually begins a couple of decades ago at a dinner party thrown by a really rich guy in Snowmass, Colorado. He'd invited a bunch of his friends, plus two younger women he didn't really know. One was a writer who happened to be in town, Rebecca Solnit. Mm -hmm.
2: It was this glam house that looked like a Ralph Lauren ad, with the kilims and wood-burning stove and rusticity, you know, some some sort of luxury, uh, roughing it, uh, fantasy uh, vacation home. And uh, it was mostly older people, and clearly people who were wealthy and powerful and thought of themselves as important. And we were both about 40 and were clearly like the young ingenues in the room.
0: Rebecca had gone to Colorado to visit her friend, Sally. Sally had talked her into going to this party. And the point of the party was to make Rebecca feel ignored. At least that's how she felt. The host hardly said a word to her until they were about to leave.
2: And then came over to us and said to me, so, I hear you've written a couple of books.
0: And at that point, how many books had you written?
2: I think 7 Mm-hmm. Which is not technically a couple. And so I, I said several, actually. And he said, oh, and what are they about in this already intensely patronizing tone, My most recent one had been about Edward Muybridge and Muybridge's transformation of photography into a technology that could capture motion. And... He interrupted me to tell me that I should know about the very important Moybridge book that had just come out. <laughs>
0: and, and he was about to explain to you about Edward Moybridge.
2: He did proceed to explain uh, about the very important Moybridge book I should know about.
0: The host went on and on and on about this book about the British photographer that both women could tell he hadn't actually read. They could tell this because Rebecca had written the book. River of Shadows, Edward Moybridge and the Technological Wild West.
2: It took my friend Sally three or four times of trying to interject, that's her book, before he actually listened to her enough to shut the fuck up. And so it's kind of glorious <laughs> and horrific as a pristine, shining, diamond like example.
0: A pristine, shining, diamond-like example. But of what? The answer didn't leap instantly to Rebecca's mind. She filed the rich guy away as an example of something. It took her five years to find the words to fully express what it had been an example of. But then one morning, she sat down and wrote a piece. Men explain things to me, she called it. It was an instant classic. Mm -hmm.
2: I wrote the essay in 2008, and some mysterious unnamed person, who I've always assumed is a woman, coined the term mansplaining in response to it, and then the world was off and running.
0: When you published the original essay, did you get any kind of backlash? Was there any hostility?
2: I got a very funny letter from a man who said he'd never patronized a woman in his life, and I just needed to get over my feelings of inferiority and speak up. (laughs) And he proceeded
0: to patronize you.
2: Why, yes. Well, <laughs> welcome to my gender, Michael. You sound surprised.
0: <laughs> what Rebecca got next was an avalanche of similar stories, all from women. There was the woman who listened to a man explain how to pronounce her own name. There was the female scientist to whom a man explained the contents of her own academic paper. There was a the one about, well, I shouldn't really be the one telling you about this. Can you walk me through a few of them?
2: Uh, somebody, somebody tweets a photograph of a woman sharpshooter in last summer's Olympics, and a man explains that she's got the wrong stance, and uh, he's explaining she should hold it with both hands.
0: He's wrong, of course. Men explaining sports to professional female athletes turned out to be a whole subgenre of mansplaining.
2: Molly Seidel, um, who won a silver or bronze medal in track in the Olympics a few years ago, um, tweeted, On my flight, I was talking to a guy next to me, and it came up that I run. He starts telling me how I need to train high mileage and pulls up an analysis he'd made of a pro runner's training on his phone. The pro runner was me. It was my training. Didn't have the heart to tell him.
0: just as Rebecca hadn't had the heart to tell the rich guy that he was lecturing her about a book she herself had written. She's obviously found the heart since.
2: Can I just read you one one more? I
0: I have an almost bottomless appetite.
2: Here's a woman named Eileen Mary O'Connell, who said on Twitter a few years ago, thinking about the time that I said I was distantly related to Marie Curie, and a man explained, it's pronounced Mariah Carey.
0: I'm Michael Lewis, pronounced Michael Lewis. And this is Against the Rules, where we explore unfairness in American life by looking at what's happened to various characters in American life. This season is about experts. And this episode is about men, or anyway, about this thing that men do. Because they really are naturally superior to women at one thing, offering themselves up as experts when they clearly are not. Now I am, of course, a man. And as a man, I might offer you, with total confidence, all kinds of theories about why we are the way we are. I could explain, until every oxygen molecule is sucked out of the room, why men are so ready to explain things to people who know more about those things than we do. But let me turn instead to the journalists Claire Shipman and Katty Kay. Because they wrote an entire book that offers up one really plausible theory. And I actually read it. It's called The Confidence Code.
3: Columbia University has come up with a, a phrase which we love. It's called honest overconfidence.
0: That's Caddy K.
3: And Columbia reckons that men tend to overestimate their ability by something like 30%. Women tend to underestimate their ability, but men tend to overestimate their ability. And they call it honest overconfidence because it's not that they're pretending they know more, they actually believe they are about 30% better than they are.
0: Now, we've all learned to be skeptical about this sort of social science. Some researcher discovers something shocking about human nature, and then it turns out to be not really true or only sort of true or true only in certain circumstances. But in the case of male overconfidence, The findings are totally solid.
3: If you want to do a social science test with a bunch of graduate students and you want to make sure you know in advance what the answer is going to be, you give a group of men and women a scientific reasoning quiz. And the men will nearly always say they're going to perform better than they actually do. And the women will nearly always say they're going to perform worse than they actually do.
0: And why is this? I know it's a hard question to answer, Hmm. but like when does this when does this first manifest itself in life do little girls and little boys exhibit this tendency or is it does it only happen later in life
3: this really starts to manifest itself in middle school around puberty we commissioned a survey for our book on confidence in girls that suggests that between the ages of 9 and about 13 Girls lose a third of their confidence and they never get it back.
0: Obviously, boys can grow up to be underconfident men and girls can grow up to be confident women. And obviously, not every man longs to explain things that he shouldn't. But there's an undeniable pattern here men thinking they have an expertise that they don't. You really don't have to look any further than Wall Street for examples.
4: Imagine that. You are an individual investor, maybe not that active, but occasionally trading.
0: That's Terry O'Dean, a finance professor at UC Berkeley. He and his colleague Brad Barber made what might be the purest case study of male overconfidence. But they set out to just look at how ordinary people traded in the stock market.
4: You open up the Wall Street Journal one morning. You read a paragraph about some company. You say, wow, that really sounds great. I think I'll buy it. So you don't pause and say, maybe professional investors already know this. It's already been incorporated into price. You just say, sounds like a good idea. I'll buy. Maybe another investor reads the same stuff, says intriguing company, but I really don't know enough to place a
0: trade. And I gotta get to work. So, what's the difference between overconfidence and confidence? I can see how confidence is sort of what leads thought to action. Yes. But what's the difference between just confidence and why is it overconfident?
4: Systematically on the side of thinking you know more than you do,
0: and that's what leads you to buy the stock or sell the stock.
4: Yes, I I think it takes a, a great deal of hubris to think you are going to do part time if you have a regular job. You you are going to do what professional money managers struggle to do and many never succeed at.
0: Unless you're trading on inside information, which is illegal, when you make a bet on the price of some stock, you're basically betting on the flip of a coin and you're paying a commission each time you do it. Over and over, the smartest professional investors fail to outperform the market by picking stocks. For an amateur to even try, well, it's a lot like mansplaining. Terry O'Dean thought so, too. He wondered whether there was any difference between how men and women behaved in the stock market. So he and his colleague got a hold of data from online brokerage accounts. They sorted the money into three buckets. Money managed by single men, money managed by single women, and money managed by married couples. Men did worse than women, and not just a little worse. Both men and
4: women underperformed the buy and hold approach, but men underperform by one percentage point more a year on average than women. Single men by 1.4 percentage points more a year on average than single women. Which is actually quite significant.
0: Yes. It sounds like a little, but if you compound that over a lifetime.
4: Even you know, occasionally financial reporters will say, well does anyone really care about 1%? And what I usually say is next time you're shopping for a mortgage. Ask yourself that question. Right. I mean, a one percentage point difference in your mortgage is going to add up to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars over the life of a 30-year mortgage.
0: Hearing this, you might conclude that we'd all be better off if Wall Street were overhauled and women were put in charge of the financial risk-taking. But what we got instead was a world-historic financial crisis engineered by very confident men. Even that didn't cause anyone to ask if leaving the financial risk-taking to men was a great idea. Except in Iceland. In Iceland, they actually figured it out. They replaced the men in the banks with women and the male prime minister with a woman who promised never again to let Icelandic men touch her banks. Outside of Iceland, men still mostly decide what to do with big piles of money. Terry O'Dean's findings have gone ignored. But has anybody ever called you and said, thank you... Terry, I have my job managing the stock portfolio because of your paper.
4: That has never happened. One thing did happen. I got a letter once, shortly after the paper got you know, some coverage in the popular press. A woman wrote and said, I want to thank you. She's in her 60s. And uh, she said, my husband has been actively trading our savings. And I've been very nervous about it for the last few years. And then I read about your paper, and I told him to stop actively trading my savings. So I thought, well, that that feels good.
0: Against the Rules, we'll be right back. As listeners of this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet?
1: Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Terms and conditions apply.
0: Let's recap our findings thus far. Men are especially capable of thinking they know things they really don't. They feel a weird compulsion to explain subjects to people who know more about those subjects than they do. And they are more likely than people who are not men to think they know things that are totally unknowable. Sometimes they even act on that belief and lose huge piles of money. But it's not really men's fault, or rather, it's not the fault of any individual man. If a man is deluded into believing he knows more than he actually does, it's because he's surrounded by people who share his delusion, who encourage his overconfidence. The writer Maria Konnikova wrote a whole book about this. The Confidence Game, it was called. It was all about con artists but it's also about what con artists tell us about our culture. Exhibit A was a man named Ferdinand Waldo de Mara, who had a gift for persuading people that he knew stuff that he did not.
5: We during the Korean War, and he decides that he 's going to steal the credentials of a doctor in Canada and apply to be a doctor on a ship a military doctor because he actually identifies a perfect
0: opportunity. Why would he even want to do that like why would you why would you want to be a doctor on a ship
5: so Damara is someone who is so Narcissistic, so full of himself that he thinks that he is the best person in the world and he loves more than anything else playing God. And what is the ultimate profession where you really get to play God? It's being a surgeon. It's actually having people's lives in your hands. So he falsified his credentials, ended up getting an appointment, and ended up being the sole physician aboard this ship heading to Korea during the war. Not only that, but he then ended up operating on a ship full of soldiers who'd been in an ambush. So he ended up operating on all of them, and as he said, saving their lives, but we don't actually know what happened.
0: You might see this imposter as an extreme example, but you might also see him as a case in point but this feels like a very male thing to do. I have a a very hard time imagining a woman doing
5: this. I agree. I agree. And I think that those types of cons, that's why we don't really see, we don't know any stories of women pulling something like that off. All of the female cons that I was able to kind of unearth when when I was researching the confidence game were things like, oh, I'm going to pretend to be the daughter of Carnegie um, so that I can get people to loan me lots of money um, because right. they think that I'm going to come into my inheritance or something like that.
0: But it's not a pretense of expertise. No,
5: it's not. It's something very different. It's I'm not who I say I am, but it's not an I can do what I, what I can't actually do. I am heir to this fortune. I'm a socialite and I have connections to royalty. I am part of the aristocracy.
0: Why is it you think, Women don't pretend to expertise.
5: I think that actually just because of the type of society we're in, the fact that we are in a male-dominated world, that female experts tend to be questioned more. If a woman says, I'm the best surgeon you've ever seen, red flags are going to start, you know, waving.
0: Con artists pick up on psychological cues. That's how they con us. The cue here is that when we hear the word expert, we form a picture in our head. And that picture is of a man.
6: My husband and I were on a pretty long flight.
0: Her name is Amina Mogul. Dr. Amina Mogul.
6: And I was sitting um it was like a 777 jet. So I was sitting close to the aisle and uh in the middle section. And there was a gentleman who was walking back from the restrooms who was seated just one row behind me to my left and he just completely Collapsed. I mean, he just fell down face forward, and um, a flight attendant immediately rushed over. And so uh, she shouted to find out if there was anyone who was a doctor on the plane.
0: Amina wasn't just any doctor, she was a former army doctor who now worked as a general practitioner. She'd been trained for battlefield emergencies. She was exactly the kind of doctor you'd want in this moment. And she was right there, she'd seen it all.
6: So I stood up and I said, I'm a doctor. And right behind this gentleman's row was a um, older uh, male nurse. He identified himself as a nurse. He was Caucasian. I'm South Asian. And um, he stepped up and the flight attendant kind of completely ignored me. And my, my husband was seated next to me. He's a pretty tall Caucasian guy. And he tried to alert the flight attendant and said, hey, my wife is here. She's a doctor. And she looked at me, and then she looked at him, and she said, "We have the help that we need and um <laughs> and that was that.
0: do you think she looked at you and thought, "Not doctor
6: absolutely, absolutely she and actually, you know what now that I think about it, I think she actually said, "What you're a doctor like like it was somehow unbelievable, And my husband goes, "Yeah, she's a doctor' and then she just looked at him and said, "'Oh, okay, and then just kind of carried on." And I looked at—my husband and I looked at each other, and we were just like, well, that was bizarre.
0: Meanwhile, there was this man who might be dying on the floor of the, of Correct. the airplane. Correct.
6: And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I hope he's okay.
0: Unfortunately, it never occurred to the male nurse or anyone else that they were in the presence of someone who might know more than they did. But the truth was that Amada didn't give the episode much thought until she stumbled upon a Facebook group of female doctors— in which another woman described how she'd just come off a flight with some medical emergency, and she'd shouted that she was a doctor, and everyone had just ignored her.
6: And a lot of people just started chiming in with their anecdotes, and there were a lot of them. There were a lot of them. I was kind of shocked at how many other people had been through the same thing.
0: That's how Dr. Amina Mogul found out that this was actually a thing. Invisible female doctors on planes. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a Smarter Travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply.
5: With T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
1: At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off, grand slam, or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Not even a
0: man wants to die on an airplane because no one can see the female doctor in seat 18B. It's clearly not healthy for any society to treat men as if they know more than they actually do, and women as if they know less. It encourages men to become imposters. It drags women with actual knowledge into imposter syndrome. It cheats the entire society of expertise. And so the obvious question is, why does this happen? Before you or I answer that question, let's describe, or let's let Catty Kay describe, one final science experiment done a few years ago by an American psychologist named Zach Estes.
3: He um, sat a group of men and women and gave them a um, spatial awareness test. It's a series of like Rubik's Cube type puzzles on a computer screen and you have to Solve these puzzles. And he gives them the same test. And the women do significantly less well than the men do. So Professor Estes goes back over the results and he sees that what's happened is that the women have skipped questions more often than the men have. And he thought that was interesting.
0: The women were basically saying they didn't know the answer to a question a lot more than the men. And it wasn't because the men were more likely to know the answers.
3: The next test he gives the same group another set. And he says, okay, now no one is allowed to skip anything. No omissions is what he calls it. So no one's allowed to skip anything. And guess what? On the test where the women have to answer the questions, they do just as well as the men.
0: Sometimes it is better to think you know the answer to the question when you don't, because it leads you to answer the question rather than just leave it blank. That's the joy of overconfidence. It pays. And not just in a social science lab, in real life.
5: Obviously, no one knows your cards except for you. And all they see is how you present yourself, right? The only information that's available is how you
0: play. After Maria Konnikova wrote her book about con artists, she stumbled upon a book called The Theory of Games by a pair of genius mathematicians named von Neumann and Morgenstern. Morgenstern had gone looking for games that resembled real life. He had this idea that if he could figure out the smartest way to play certain games— He could also figure out the smartest way to deal with a lot of situations in real life.
5: He has this whole passage where he says that chess is boring, like chess is a bullshit game. Don't have me play chess because I can solve it, right? I'm creating this thing that's going to become the computer. Give me enough computing power and I tell you the right move. That's not life. That doesn't help me make decisions in life. How do I decide in a nuclear war situation. He actually, you know, at that time he was advising um, the National Security Council. So this was not abstract. He said, you know, and roulette also total bullshit because that's just gambling.
0: That's chance. So it's almost the opposite. You've got the end of the spectrum. You can chess on exactly. one end of the spectrum, which is entirely rule-based and you can solve with AI Yep. and coin flipping or yep. roulette or total chance. Exactly. And somewhere in between is poker and, po- and that's life too.
5: Exactly. Poker is the model for decision-making in life because both poker and life are games of incomplete information. He said, and real life, this is a quote from him, which is one of my favorite quotes. He said, real life consists of bluffing, of little tactics of deception, of trying to figure out what does this man think I mean to do?
0: Maria had never played poker and had no clue how to act, but she set out to become a professional poker player. The first thing she did was hire a coach a famous player and you had no idea of even the rules of the game
5: and i told him that i didn't know much about poker i mean i know that there are 54 cards in a deck and he just he said wait excuse me i just his face just changed and i said what and he said, how many cards are in a deck? And now I start doubting myself a little. I said, 54. And he's like, well, you know, theoretically with the Jokers, yes. But when we're doing odds calculations, it would be better if you used 52. You know, just to keep things a little simple.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is, help me list the ways poker is like life. One is that you're never going to have, or like life's decisions, making decisions in life. One is you you have incomplete information. You're never going to have perfect information. You know you're never going to have perfect information, but you're getting more information. So you you have to update and respond to new information, which is its own kind of skill, right? And there are probabilities that can be calculated, but they're only partially knowable, right? Am I wrong about all that? All correct.
5: This is all correct. Is
0: anything? Can you think of anything else that goes on yeah. that list?
5: So then you have, I mean, the incomplete information works in a way where no one knows what cards you have and... The only thing they can see is how you act, right? And that's true of all the other people, too.
0: But when she started out, Maria really didn't know how to act at a poker table.
5: I was in a totally foreign environment. I was suffering from major imposter syndrome. Professional poker is about 97 to 98% male. So this is something where, you know, you are often the only woman at the table. And so I was letting things like, oh, I don't want them to think I'm a bitch, guide my decisions or oh well you know you're raising so much here you can just take the pot it's fine i don't need to win every single one here you go
0: this isn't the story of maria's career as a poker player you can read that in the book she eventually wrote the biggest bluff she'd wind up winning hundreds of thousands of dollars
1: five cards elani can hit to eliminate maria Konakova. he's pretty good at hitting these. Nope, he misses on this occasion, and Maria Konnikova survives.
0: For my own purposes here, I'm interested in a single little lesson she learned about overconfidence.
5: So I had this conversation with my coach, and he told me something that, taken with my work on overconfidence, I think really got to kind of the heart of the issue of confidence versus overconfidence at the poker table. So what he told me was that people who start out playing poker tend to fall into one of two camps. Either they are way too cautious, that's what what I was doing, you know, they're scared and they play scared, or they are way too
0: aggressive, they bluff way too much. Bluffing is to poker what mansplaining is to conversation, a pretense that you know more or have more than you really do. It didn't come naturally to Maria. She didn't bluff. She was suckered by men who did. So were the other men. Because when you haven't seen the other person play, well, you judge them by how they seem. When
5: nobody knows who you are, people tend to, at least at the beginning, give you the benefit of the doubt. So if you sit down at a new table and you are incredibly aggressive... The first time you're incredibly aggressive, people are probably going to assume you have a good hand and they're going to fold. The second time, they'll probably assume you have a good hand and they'll fold. So he said if you're going to pick one extreme, you want to pick the aggressive extreme because aggressive players, you know, they – They tend to win more often because aggression often pays off.
0: So the first wave of washouts are the cautious people.
5: Yes. So I would have lost my money long before the overconfident people. But also when you're aggressive, you put people in more difficult situations. So if you're passive, you're easy to play against because other people can then, you know, they know that when you're betting, you're strong. They know that when you're not betting, you're weak and you become predictable.
0: In professional poker, this eventually works itself out. You play thousands and thousands of hands with the same person, and you see their cards after they've bluffed, and you learn not to take what they do at face value. But in real life, we don't usually get to play thousands of hands of the same game with the same people. In real life, we go to a dinner party with people we've never met. Real life is more like amateur poker. When you're aggressive, you become, it becomes much more difficult, especially if you're smart aggressive. That
5: tends to win more money in the short term, because confidence actually, you know, is something at the poker table where confidence is part of the information that other people have.
0: Maria had set out to see what poker could teach her about real life. One big thing it taught her was the power of overconfidence in all kinds of human interactions.
5: Imagine two people coming into an interview, right, and being asked the exact same question. And someone asks me, okay, you know, do you know how to do this? And I say, well, you know, I haven't worked on it in the last five years, but I can ramp up really quickly and I have all these component skills. Other person comes in and says, yes, absolutely. I can do it. No problem. Who's going to get hired, right? The me who was, who actually might know more or the person who's like, yeah, totally. I know, I know exactly what this is. That approach works people who are just overconfident oftentimes just get their way.
0: Right. Right. When you were learning, did you feel like, when you were getting better, did you have a sense of yourself masculinizing yourself?
5: <laughs> yeah, um, that's, that's a funny way of putting it, but yeah, I did. Um, I had a conversation with my husband at some point where I said I need to grow bigger balls. <laughs> looked at me like I was totally insane. but I was like, you know, I've just realized that I just, I lack them completely and that's not good. He's like, yes, you do lack them (laughs) And, and, and I'm okay with
0: that. Here's the most unsettling thing about mansplaining and also the most unsettling thing about overconfidence. Now that it's got a name, it just seems pathetic. When some old rich guy tries to tell a famous female writer about her own book, we laugh. But we missed the point. The point is that most of the time he will leave that party feeling even more confident than he did before. Against the Rules is written and hosted by me, Michael Lewis, and produced by Catherine Girardeau and Lydia Jean Cott. Julia Barton is our editor, with additional editing by Audrey Dilling. Beth Johnson is our fact-checker, and Mia Lobel executive produces. Our music is created by John Evans and Matthias Bossi of Stellwagen Stimphonette. We record our show at Berkeley Advanced Media Studios, expertly helmed by Topher Ruth. Thanks also to Jacob Weisberg, Heather Fain, John Snars, Carly Migliori, Christina Sullivan, Eric Sandler, Maggie Taylor, Morgan Ratner, Nicole Morano, Royston Breserve, Daniela Lacan, Mary Beth Smith, and Jason Gambrell. Against the Rules is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. Keep in touch... Sign up for Pushkin's newsletter at pushkin.fm or follow at Pushkin Pods. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
5: I was thinking of my um, Rebecca Stolnitz story, which I
0: totally forgot. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Topher, are you recording this?
5: I was at a party. And I was talking to a guy who worked in tech, and he was explaining to me how the business of podcasting works. And the thing about it is I was genuinely listening to him, thinking that maybe he could tell me something I didn't know for some reason, like just silently letting him talk for like so long that eventually another guy who had been overhearing the conversation interrupted and said, are you seriously explaining to a professional podcaster the business of podcasting? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what did, he, what did the guy do then?
5: He got embarrassed and he stopped talking.
0: <laughs> yes, but, but think how many times that happens and nobody ever says anything.
1: Yeah, well, I didn't say anything.
0: Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side. Curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter.